Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We're broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Recent podcasts can be found on the 3CR website, the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. In an article titled Living Blanket, Water Diviner, Wild Pet, A Cultural History of the Dingo by Justine Phillip in The Conversation, Dingoes maintained the dual roles of human companion in Aboriginal communities and top-order predator, retaining their independent and essentially wild nature over thousands of years. With the history of Australia's colonisation being really knitted by the history of the sheep pastoral industry, who saw the dingo as a predator on sheep and thus to be gotten rid of, Justine states Aboriginal women suffered an additional deep trauma from this process of removal of the dingo, who is tied intimately with their relationship and kinship to land. It suddenly was dangerous to have the dingoes with them. Colonisers also brought dogs in all shapes and sizes. A number of years ago, I used to live in the bush and I got myself a job as a teacher's assistant in uh, the town that was uh, a little bit further down on the river road. Now, this town was really just one farm, two farmhouses and a community hall and the school. And uh, there, But it had a place name sign. And on that place name sign, the dogger, the local dogger, used to hang the carcasses of his kills these dogs would uh, hang from the signs and it was to prove that the dogger was doing his job. Now, the dogs were not dingoes. They they didn't even appear to have any dingo in them. They looked more like Alsatians or other sorts of, you know, familiar large dog breeds. It led to uh, a thought about this idea of wild dogs and uh, how they... uh, are in the minds of the local farmers as being one of the big hazards of against their livestock. And that feeds into this idea that uh, dingoes are the source of the problems with livestock 
deaths. But looking at the dogs that were hanging on those uh, that sign, it was quite clear that those wild dogs were actually the offspring of the dogs that had been brought to the farms themselves. Brought to mind that one time when we were driving down to a coastal town to do some shopping, I, I remember seeing some puppy dogs that obviously had been discarded by some owners and people did that. They let out domestic animals into the bush when they didn't want them anymore and so I was thinking that these pups must, uh, some of them must have survived and ultimately it would appear that the farming farmers and others had brought their own destruction. Uh, the wild dogs actually came from them In speaking with people about dingoes or wild dogs, they see them as two very different topics. The problem of referencing these canids. In interchangeable language this way, separating them based on purity or looks, is that under a wild dog management plan, dingoes, our apex predators, are getting killed en masse. Who exactly are we referencing when we refer to a wild dog or dingo? I have a few conversations here to clear up a bit of confusion on these labels with Aaron Wallach, rich in experience, who as well as being in a Eureka prize-winning team years ago for her work on the Apex Predator, our dingo started the Dingo for Biodiversity Project with her partner, a former feral animal eradicator himself. How did we get to think like we do when we look at this issue? I speak with Fiona Proben-Rapsi about this, who delves more into the curious way in which we unflinchingly judge dogs by breed, not deed, and hold purity as a trump card, as a stunning and misleading distraction in how we are treating them now. I also speak with Joshua Sade from The Dingo Den, an educational resource in the issue and also a sanctuary for rescued dingoes. So Josh really does work on the front line here. I also speak with Mark Pearson from the Animal Justice Party who has taken up the cause for our dingo to Parliament. Dingo doesn't quite fit into any category properly. Not quite a native species, not quite a dog, not quite the right sort of pet. Sort of weird to see them in zoos because they look just like everyone else's pets. A threat to sheep, but, you know, they deserve their own place in the landscape. They're just such a great example of how an animal escapes our cultural concepts and our cultural constructs that we try and put in place to keep animals in place. (laughs) So that's why I love them. People don't identify with what dingoes are and all the different variations we have throughout Australia. They all look different. So there's misunderstanding now what the dingo actually is to start with. That's a problem. You get black dingoes, you get white, you get sable, you get yellow, you get red. They're all all different depending on where they're from. So one, we don't identify dingoes well. There is no research going into them. We just our money gets put toward eradicating them. They look like a dog, so people don't have the reverence for them that you would say a lion in Africa. My name is Ariane Wallach. I'm a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, at the Centre for Compassionate Conservation. 
let's clear up the confusion of a dingo and a wild dog. Because speaking to many people on this matter, they have a very clear distinction in their minds. How are they the same and how are they different? Telling us how hybridisation shouldn't be a dirty word. The term wild dog is an interesting one. It has, uh, its meaning is primarily political rather than biological or ecological. Essentially, any wild canid in Australia is a dingo. And any canid who either lives in people's homes or in communities as in a mutualistic relationship with humans is a dog. It's true that dogs and dingoes can interbreed, and occasionally they do. And that's just because virtually all canid species around the world can interbreed. Um, In the United States, gray wolves and coyotes will interbreed, coyotes and dogs, dogs and wolves. The various species of wolves will interbreed if they're in the same area. So there's, there's just actually nothing unusual about hybridization between dingoes and dogs per se, but it has been used as a, as a uh, political tool to justify killing dingoes, primarily because dingoes are persecuted in national parks, and the way to justify killing an animal that is sort of according to policy considered a native species is to remove their native status by saying that they have hybridized, therefore they're not native, and therefore they're killable. And then the term wild dog stands in for that. But it doesn't have any biological or ecological meaning beyond that. Does the purity here matter in any sense or for any purpose, in your opinion? I don't think I deserve to have an opinion on the subject. It's really up to a dingo who they choose to mate with. And it's not really any of my business um, who a dingo mates with or who a dog mates with. The actual insistence on defining wildlife as being either pure or impure has some pretty troubling connotations if, if, we, if we were, and we occasionally do, apply them to humans. The Dingo for Biodiversity project is a research project, and, and like any applied ecological program, it flows out of certain, uh, certain values, certain ethics, certain virtues, and we aim to make those explicit. And so when thinking through what are the ethical positions underlying our research activities and we did highlight this issue because it's so politically powerful around this idea of of hybridization. There's some very interesting and good work by uh, Professor Fiona proben Rapsi from the University of Wollongong who makes a very compelling case between the way that racism can operate um, when we talk about human purity and have in the past and occasionally still do, um, and how we speak about animal purity. Now, it's somewhat different because all humans are considered to be one species, whereas all canids are not. Um, But the fact that all canids are not considered to be a single species has to do with certain philosophies of how the species concept is applied. Um, There isn't anything biologically 
wrong with considering all canids that can interbreed one species, but because the canids themselves have either been isolated for a very long time and often have chosen to be isolated, for example, wolves and coyotes in North America, they co-occur, but they tend to live somewhat different lives, um, and they will tend to choose not to interbreed if they can. So generally, interbreeding occurs when social structures break down. I think this would probably be particularly the case with domestic dogs because for a dingo to be able to form a successful uh, pack, they need the male and female matriarch and patriarch to be able to support each other in holding the territory and in hunting together and so on. And so overall, for a dingo to have a mate as a dog... Um, they can provide genetic material, but they generally cannot provide much more than that. And so they, it, it ends up being a relatively poor, poor union. My name is Professor Fiona proben Rapsi from the University of Wollongong in the, from the School of Humanities and Social Inquiry. So um, my, my dingo, who comes to me through a sanctuary and was impounded in Queensland, we, un- we understand, and was put on the death list because in Queensland it's illegal to own dingoes as pets. And so my dingo was going to be um, euthanized, which is not the correct word to use because euthanasia should apply to deaths that are in the animal's interest. This death obviously would not be in the interest of my dingo. Anyway, when my dingo, my dingo came and... Um, his name is Tully. He's very beautiful. And the question that we always get asked when people meet Tully is, uh, is he a real dingo? And that's because Tully has what's called a sable colour. So he's got a sort of a black fleck um, through his through his, the fur on his back. Um, and otherwise, he's that classic sort of orange and white distribution of colours with the white paws and the and the orange, orange fur. But that so that question is he is he a pure dingo? is the question that always gets asked. And that's, of course, the question that people ask in relation to most, most, most dogs. Dogs have been bred by humans to conform to particular ways of looking. And we know that dog breeding has been going on for thousands of years, and we've produced from this one species the most incredible variations from the Pomeranian to the Irish wolfhound, Dogs are so incredibly different looking. But the idea that a dog could be a pure breed is about is also a question about human control. So how much of this particular dog, its appearance, is the result of deliberate breeding, either by humans or by the dog's isolation from other dogs? So what I love about this, and my answer to this question from people is always, well, the idea of the pure dingo doesn't really make sense given that they're actually a wild dog and that they haven't been subjected to domestic breeding regimes in the way that other breeds have. And they, the science around um, purity in dingoes is not particularly convincing on a number of levels. So I give this long and involved explanation to people who ask the question. But it's always really interesting to me that that's the first question that people often ask. And they don't really want um, Tully to be a pure dingo, I suppose, because people would find it a bit odd that this, you know, a wild dingo should be living with humans because surely that's corrupting the idea of the wild. But they also 
can't really work out why dingoes would have this incredible variation in their appearance. So yeah, people's reactions to dingoes are affected by both histories of dog breeding and the presumption of human control and human mastery, but also these, this image of, a, of an authentic, untouched nature that would always choose, choose to remain separate from the rest of the world. It's quite curious. There's also other stuff going on with the dingo, dingo breeding that's happening in backyards across the country where people are breeding what they think looks like the perfect dingo, the orange and the white paws, and don't necessarily find the black kelpie-like dingoes to be convincing or acceptable in terms of that, that confirmation. So we're, we're accustomed to looking at dogs as things that are managed by humans and so as soon as you get the, the language of dog breeding and apply it to the dingo you've lost that whole element of the dingo actually self-selecting its mates the reason that dingoes have this huge variety the reason that they that they are um, hybridizing in a positive way is because they're choosing their own mates they're not being deliberately bred with their own grandparents as we do with other dog breeds by in the control of humans they're quite fascinating. 3CR, in-depth interviews that give a voice to the issues that are often unheard. The wild dog dingo issue is central to the way in which the sheep industry is able to enter into the debate about the future of wild dogs and dingoes. And the way this, the way this works is that Sheep farmers can give themselves a social license to kill dogs that are not dingoes on the basis that they're actually doing a good a good deed for both the, the, the supposed purity of the dingo and also maintaining the order between what constitutes a proper animal and what constitutes an improper animal. But it's far more complicated, obviously, because wild dogs are perceived as being not proper dingoes but actually the very definition of a dingo is also wild dog so the ways in which the wild dog has been situated as impure relies on this fiction that there is a genuine pure dingo that we can measure the impurity of the wild dog by Um, and the problem with that is that the tests that they've used to determine what a pure dingo is is based on a specimen held in the British Museum that was sent back to London as an example of what a dingo is. And that has presumed, of course, that the dingo was the same sort of genetic specimen that came into Australia once or twice through the Macassan sea trade. Whereas we know that the Macassan sea traders were introducing the dingo into Australia through, through that Macassan sea trade for thousands of years. So the dingo didn't come in just once as this pure genetic stock. It would have come a number of times and its genetic mixture would be very difficult to determine based on that mobility across northern Australia and and through the sea trade. Mm. So this fictitious pure dingo is then held up as the thing to rescue and the thing to save while every other dog is rendered inauthentic and can be legitimately killed off in order to supposedly save this pure specimen. So it's, it's a form of violence that's, that's legitimated in the name of conservation that is, that's 
are deeply troubling, I think, for a lot of dingo biologists as well, um, who are not necessarily as convinced by the dingo purity arguments either. You are on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. We are speaking with Fiona proben Rapsi about the dingo and how the language of extinction is used against them. The way in which the dingo is becoming extinct is quite an, that is quite an interesting use of that word extinction. The, the, the idea that the dingoes become extinct by interbreeding with domestic dogs is, again, based on this idea that there was a pure dingo and that the bloodlines should be kept intact and the dingoes should only ever mate with other dingoes. And if they move outside of dingo community, then they are working towards the extinction of their own uh, species. But this is, this is, of course, based on a on a quite a weird understanding of the ways in which animals would choose a mate, not, not, not on the basis that it is um, genetically pure enough to maintain their own family pedigree, but that it might also be complementary to their own survival. It might even be based on their own choice. Um, so there is evidence to, to suggest that wild dogs don't necessarily do any more damage than any fictitious pure dingo would and that the seasonal breeding that might change between dingoes and other domestic dogs might actually be in the wild dogs or dingoes' benefit because they get to, they get to persist in a landscape that is otherwise becoming not, not necessarily friendly towards them. So extinction, saving a species from extinction by uh, eradicating threats to it, its bloodline is a very violent way in which to manage threats to a species. Given that pastoralism and the radical changes to the landscape that colonisation has introduced has made it almost impossible to either maintain an idea of a pure landscape, a pure country or a pure species, it seems to me to be um, more about allowing eradication programs to persist than actually about genuinely saving this fictitious pure dingo. And that, I think that's what, that's what concerns me about the mobilisation of this language by the sheep industry. Hybridised or not, dingoes have an important ecological role in the environment. But for that desired effect... The pack structure must remain stable. So when we shoot, bait, kill dingoes, we interfere with that management structure, if you like, and can change their behaviour. The good news is people have actually re-stabilised dingo pack structures when they stop shooting, baiting and killing them, finding that they have less of a problem with the wild dog issue since they left the dingoes alone to do their job. Here's Arian Wallach. Over the past 10 years or so, there's been um, a lot of research in the field called trophic cascades that shows how large predators such as dingoes have very strong keystone ecological effects and in Australia, the research is showing that, that endangerment and extinction of endemic uh, small and medium-sized mammals can be associated quite strongly to how dingoes are treated. And this is because 
dingoes as apex predators have strong effects on the densities and the behavior of their prey, such as kangaroos and rabbits, and they have similar effects on smaller predators, such as um, in today's world, that would be wild cats and red foxes. And so, in for example, if we're looking at dingoes and foxes, ecosystems where dingoes have been killed or eradicated or suppressed, those are areas where fox populations will be higher and their behavior will be different and their predation pressure on, on animals, including threatened animals, will be stronger. And those effects will, will be particularly pronounced if the dingoes are socially stable because dingoes operate in family groups that we call packs. Those packs hold territories uh, and they work the act collaboratively. They do essentially everything together. Essentially, since Europeans um, established in Australia, dingoes have been persecuted primarily because they can be very efficient predators of people's livestock, domestic animals. And both in Australia and around the world, it's a very common farming method in pastoralism to kill predators. What we know from research in Australia, but also in other places with other predators, such as South Africa, North America, and Europe, that non-lethal methods can be far more effective at protecting domestic animals from wild predators. And these wild predators, when they're socially stable, also tend to be less uh, inclined to predate on domestic animals. And they also have flow-on effects in the environment, so free-ranging livestock, as in the case in Australia, a lot of the cattle and sheep are free-ranging rather than factory farmed. And in these open environments, the cattle and the sheep, for example, are essentially living amongst wild animals. It's a biodiversity-dependent industry. And because dingoes enhance biodiversity and productivity, including plant biomass, they can have positive flow-on effects for farmers in terms of increasing vegetation availability for that, that end up feeding their livestock. How do they do that? So again, through trophic cascades, dingoes, like other big predators, will suppress the densities and change the behaviors of wild herbivores. In the absence of these predators, herbivores will have a stronger and more sort of consistent suppressive effect on vegetation, whereas in systems systems that have predators in them, vegetation, plants, in, from including the ability of trees, for example, to recruit, so for young trees to be able to grow into maturity, for shrubs to be able to, to survive droughts, those are all influenced by the protective effects of predators in Australia. That would be dingoes. So in a way, the highlighted kangaroo um, population issue at the moment would, wouldn't be at this scale if the dingo was left in charge as an apex predator. Is that right? Dingoes certainly have um, a very strong effect on kangaroos. Um, uh, 
however, I would also note that um, that um, problems can be real and they can also be perceived. Um, and a lot of the discourse around kangaroos as being pests um, can tell us more about how people, um, the ability of people to live in, the, um, to coexist with the wild animals in the environment rather than with the wild animals themselves. Um, there can be a tendency by farmers to blame wild animals for for the condition of the land that they're using rather than taking responsibility for for husbandry practices. And so it's true that dingoes will suppress kangaroos and that will have flow-on effects for vegetation, but that does not mean that in systems where maybe dingoes are not that common or their effects aren't as strong, um, for example, dingoes will not occur on offshore islands or in urban areas um, where the habitat is too small for dingoes. Those areas can have kangaroos as well, um, and those are just simp- those ecosystems can operate a bit differently. But that doesn't mean that they should be any less valued, or the kangaroos should be described as a problem. I did have a chat with someone in a market up at Merbu North. I overheard him talking about how big the deer are getting up. That they're an getting individual larger. Deer. Yeah. And mm. I kind of just sort of overheard and nicely joined the conversation. And I said, oh, you know, have you heard about the dingo, you know, for Bardiverse Project and dingoes are proven to da-da and, you know, just nicely. And he said, oh, I don't think a dingo couldn't take these guys down. They're too big. And mm. I, it, but that I highlighted, well, no, because they'd be, if a, there is a stable pack structure, the dingo would still be managing the population by fear and the fear of them taking the smaller deer away. That's, yep. Yeah? Yep, yeah. That's, that's right. And certainly um, big, yeah. deer have, if ever there was an example of co, a sort of co-evolution, deer have co-evolved with large canids. It's true that some deer will get, especially some of the males, they'll get so big that they're virtually safe. They so but they, they become safe from predators, and also if they're particularly you know robust and and that's true in the native range of the deer as well. Some individuals will go through their lives both being very lucky and being very capable, and get to a point where they're almost safe from predators. But at a population level, they were all young once. They were all you know, half-grown ones, and not all individuals become these sort of mega individuals. And predators, when they work collaboratively, can even bring down some pretty, pretty large animals, but they don't necessarily need to go to the trouble if they can hunt smaller animals. And then the population effects really don't depend on those mega individuals, although those mega individuals will then potentially be some of the most successful in terms of reproducing into the future. But in terms of the density and their ecological effects and, like you said, their behaviors, it's it's quite amazing because, you know, if you just walk into a paddock, for example, with a dog or without a dog, and you see a bunch of cows, they will often run away even though they're huge and there's no way that you know, my little cat, my little dog can do them any harm, but they're extremely wary. So that just gives us sort of a very common example that often animals that are very, very large 
them are also very careful because they need to be very careful. The, the larger they are, the more susceptible they are to injury. The In chats with people, sometimes they say to me, yes, but Emma, when I'm faced with a dog, if you're faced with a, a dog threatening um, my, a calf or a sheep, I am going to kill that dog. And given that that is a reality for some landowners at this present time, uh, when the dingo population has been interfered with, as you mentioned before, and they are uneducated dingoes desperate for a feed. How do you propose these landowners change their thinking about this management? I can understand all of us have a tendency to react violently and thoughtlessly to stressful situations. It's it's part of being human. And so I, and since I have a, an intimate knowledge of the pastoral industry because my partner and I um, managed a cattle station for two years in northern South Australia and have witnessed um, situations where dingoes were attacking or killing or had just killed calves. And there's a very strong emotional response to want to protect our domestic animals from predators. And so at that moment when there is a problem uh, in front of us, it can be more difficult for us to restrain impulsive behaviors that that exacerbate rather than solve problems. So it just wouldn't be correct to assume that if I see a dingo or any other animal killing a sheep or a cow, and then I shoot that animal, that then my that won't happen again. Clearly, it will. At the moment, wildlife-friendly farming practices are not very well developed in Australia, and so there's very little support for farmers to transition to wildlife-friendly practices. And that generally entails changing husbandry practices. It depends on the animal that is being farmed, and it depends on the area. For example, if you have a farm that's relatively small and everyone's poison baiting and shooting predators around you, you will not benefit from a socially stable dingo population no matter what you do because your farm is too small to provide, to protect it because dingoes have large territories. And if their territory is larger than your farm, then you won't have that um, socially stable situation, and if you can't stop your neighbors from poisoning and shooting wild animals, then then the husbandry methods have to suit that. There are many farmers in Australia and around the world that coexist successfully with predators. Australian farmers really are lucky in a sense that they only have to deal with dingoes and occasionally maybe with foxes and eagles, but it's important to note that farmers are successfully living with predators in Africa and in North America where there are many, many more predators, predator species, predator numbers, all the way up to bears and lions and leopards and so on. And so if they can do that, there's no reason why Australian farmers can't successfully do that too. I am resilient, I trust the move. 
I was told a really a really wonderful story about a, a national parks ranger who was told to go and investigate a wild dog who had been seen near properties. This was in the Blue Mountains, I think. Seen near properties and was sent in to go and investigate and trap and kill this wild dog slash dingo. And he went off into the bush, came back five hours later and found the dingo sitting in his passenger seat of his car. (laughs) 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 And it was such a great story because it illustrates the fact that these animals that we that we fear and we hunt and we see as criminals actually don't see themselves like that and don't necessarily see us as the threat that we seem to want to represent to them. And that the dingo has this capacity to to change shape culturally depending on how the dingo reacts to both sheep and humans. That park ranger decided not to shoot the dingo but actually took it to a sanctuary. It's a beautiful story. Before that story by Fiona Proben Rapsi, we heard a tune by Appalachia Rising called Resilient. You are tuned into 3CR 855 AM, Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. Today we were talking about the dingo. We've learnt that when we refer to wild dogs, we mean dingoes when it comes to eradication programs. We've learnt that hybridised dingoes that may have mated with any kind of other canid uh, does the same desired job in the ecology if their pack structures are left stabilised and we stop shooting, killing and baiting them. We've also learnt that the way most of us look at wild dogs is shaped by our knowledge of domestic dogs. I guess in our minds, it's general in the urban environment that untrained dogs are frowned upon and we see how much chaos an untrained dog can do. So in our minds, we connect the dots and think, wow, how much damage can untrained, uh, uncontrollable dogs do in the environment? We don't question the eradication programs which are killing off our important apex predator, the dingo. And unfortunately, even though there has been much research on the importance of our apex predator being left in the environment, at the present moment we are killing them en masse. I also chatted with Joshua Said from The Dingo Den, a fantastic educational resource. He's online, but he also has a sanctuary where he rescues a lot of dingoes and dingo pups. He's pretty much on the front line. The wild dog issue and the, the belief of it. In some areas, you do have genuine domestic dogs that have turned feral hunting dogs that have gotten not returned and, you know, they're breeds that are nothing like a dingo. But in areas that are... So a large portion of it, and we see from, from the pelts that get put in and the the animals, the dogs, the wild dogs that are hanging from the trees or the fences, now they all look dingo. And if they are hybrid, they are a high percentage of dingo. And we know that hybrid dingoes that are of a high percentage, they act and they breed and they function in the same role as what a pure dingo does in the wild. They will manage, as we talked about before, the introduced species of goat, you know, fox, cats, and they help our ecology. So the concept of, of wild dogs is a very loose one, and I think, it, I think it's something that's convenient, um, and it makes it more acceptable to be killing our dingoes. When, you know, mm. our, if, if you're going to come from a, an ecological point of view, 
you have to have your keystone predator in Australia. That, that's your dingo. And without them, everything else falls apart. There's been studies done in, uh, in South Australia where dingoes have been, uh, just one pair have been put into a controlled environment where they then removed just naturally. They pushed it off a cat and a fox. Um, they started managing all the herbivores. And um, Baron Bedong self-populated, and we thought they were extinct on the mainland, so they've come back. And a whole range of plant species have flourished, and then all our small natives have flourished. The dingoes bring balance back to your ecosystem, and they do not destroy it. Our ecosystem hinges on the dingoes, just like with wolves in, in Yellowstone. It's exactly the same story um, in Australia. If they are feral dogs, and they're genuinely feral uh, hunting dogs, then you can tell the difference. They act differently. But in those real remote places, I think do- dogs don't really last because I mean, Australia is full of paralysis ticks. Most dogs they won't have an immunity. Immunity is gained um, through exposure with paralysis ticks. And you didn't get to have that. They've been in Australia for, you know, 20 or plus thousand years. Um, they can survive climates that dogs can't. So particularly in remote areas, when we say they're, they're feral dogs, it's very unlikely. It's, they're dingoes. And if there is a percentage of dog in there, it is usually quite small. Others have said that feral dog it's just the whole thing's a miss. But then, you know, I talk to different landowners and guys on property, and they do see dogs that are running around with, you know, pig, pig dog armour on that have been out there for perhaps six months or something, you know. So they are genuine feral dogs out there. But the large portion of I think they are dingoes or high-content um, dingo hybrids, mm-hmm. and they just, you know, conveniently fall under that banner. And, you know, we can, we can wipe the dingoes out. Regardless, though, dingoes are still listed, listed as a pest species. So whether you believe in wild dogs, you know, not you legally can kill dingoes and it's fine. You're you're rewarded for it. You get money for it. So it puts everything in a very weird place and it's, mm. it's not good. But dingoes, they look like a dog, so people don't have the reverence for them that you would say a lion in Africa. And there's just there is some uh, comfortability in the wild with dingoes that can cause problems. We have issues with conflict and people like people, you know, camping with dingoes and not phrasing and there's different areas and there is some problems there with them. We we, we have to try and. You know, remedy that best we can and go, look, this is the reasons why. And this is how you should engage dingoes and in the wild, and this is what you do and don't do. Just basically give them the respect that they deserve and also then the understanding of what they can be like um, in the home and also just helping people understand, you know, basically whether they should have dingoes or not. Some people are very interested in them, but they're not a, a companion animal for everyone. They are they are unique. They are essentially a wild animal at heart. So they've got different needs to the average domestic dog. When dingoes are killed, can we go through there how it's quite legal? How What do we do? We trap and bait? Yeah, so look, to give you a bit of a snapshot, there's things that occur all throughout the year, every day, depending on, on private property. But the biggest time of year is spring. Um, governments will, local government will issue their war on wild dogs, is what it gets called, where they will outlay collectively across Australia millions of dollars worth of wild dog control. What that means is, is baits, usually. So it's baited meat that gets put out through via planes, trucks. So it's on all different areas uh, where they believe dingoes are. Sometimes research will be done where they'll catch dingoes, track them, uh, put collars on them, find out the information where packs are, etc., and bait those areas. So you end up with each spring a huge amount of dingo packs that are dispersed, that they get destroyed. And what we end up with is a, a massive orphan pup strung out throughout the countryside. People will find them starving as young as two to three weeks old, sometimes up to 500 grams, just uh, you know, skin and bone. They're dying because the parents are gone. And then they've been out looking for, for their parents to try and survive. 
Um, they're the dingoes that we take in. So we'll take in these pups that are uh, an absolute mess, uh, full of parasites and um, a whole range of different conditions um, due to malnourishment, and we'll rehabilitate them. But collectively, it's just a massive cull that occurs all throughout um, Australia. Now, the 10, 1080 that gets used, uh, that is a really lethal product. Um, it does pass on to other animals, so for dingo ingestion or goanna, whatever, no animals are uh, immune to it. It will kill anything that, that consumes it. Um, so the dingoes, let's say, will pick up the bait, eat it, it'll die. If anything comes to feed on the, the carcass of that dingo, they'll also ingest the poison and they'll die. Now, studies have shown that actually the toxicity of the 1080 increases as it gets digested from one animal to another, so it actually gets worse, to the point of where an animal's died from it and the soil is um, basically contaminated with it. If a, if a roux eats the grass from that soil, they, they get poisoned by it. Poison that will go into the waterways, we've got aquatic life that's dying from it, even to the point of birds eating insects that have feasted on a dead animal will die from it. So it's, it just goes throughout the whole ecosystem and wipes out far more than the target species. It's really detrimental to our ecosystem. It's terrible stuff. Now, most of the countries have banned it, but in Australia we're still using it. So it is, it's lethal, um, it's dangerous if you know, kids are walking through, you know, going bushwalking and they somehow happen to find a poison bait and they ate it. They're kill a person or make them extremely sick. It is really dangerous. As a whole, um, yeah, dingoes copper a, a, a lot of... The primary sort of method is baiting. Additionally to that, there'll be the traps set out, so that's, you know, jawspring traps, which will clamp down and on the feet, typically breaking bones or just severe bruising. They'll be kept. People will go out and find them, and then they'll be shot or budgeted. I have been some reports of people taking their dogs out and just a very slow and painful end to the dingoes. It's not, not in a humane approach. There is a bit of hate um, from some farmers who have lost livestock to dingoes that are very frustrated, which is understandable. You, know, you can understand someone trying to make a, make a living and the livestock is being harassed, but you know, that goes down to education and what better ways that we can work together. We've discussed it on this program before, how 1080 is an incredibly painful, cruel way to mm, die. Yeah. Like it's a it's a torture. It's very slow. Poison. Yeah. And there are many people who have had dogs that have accidentally eaten those baits and the, and witnessed the extreme cruelty mm. of that poison. With the traps, Joshua, how often does like a dogger, person who should check the trap, how, how long do these dogs or other animals stay stuck in, this, in these traps? I've read reports up to a week by the time they you know, sort of go around and find them or sometimes the animal will just die of dehydration and starvation being caught in a trap so yeah it's it's not again some of the traps that get used which are the, the metal jaw types they've been outlawed in most of the countries as well but again and they've been outlawed uh, again it's this funny loophole so the dingo sits in his zone where it's okay to use that stuff but for other animals it's not um so the yeah the, the dingoes are, they are hard done by most other species in just different areas, it's inhumane to use it, but man, they're not, not supposed to. But for dingoes, it seems to be that that's okay. Because they're listed under that Pest Species Act, they just, yeah, there's, there's nothing protecting them. They just cop whatever means are possible. The kindest thing for them, honestly, is, is just a bullet, but they sort of, I mean, the way, yeah, the other methods are just terrible. As a whole, I mean, that's, a lot of guys will shoot them. Um, they'll they'll get, the, get the fur and, you know, get the pelts and 
hand that in for cash. Um, I've sent some pretty sad reports of people. There's actually one young girl. She was saving up to buy her first car um, through all the pelt money that she was collecting from the dingoes, which was really sad to see. Just You'd hope that as time goes on, each generation will become more educated, but in some instances it just seems that they're not. Yeah, there's lots of... Any, any method really um, possible. Some tactics, doctors will find where the, the litters are, the pups, inside a log or a den. They'll pull all the puppies out and put them in the open and then they'll wait and obviously the pups will start screaming or they'll, they'll hurt the pups so the pups will you know, scream. So the parents come along or the other pack members come along and then as they come to see what's going on to the pups, then the guys will shoot them. So it is a... Yeah, it's a very... Uh, disturbing, I think, and, and, and very cruel methods of how we eradicate dingoes. Mark Pearson, Animal Justice Party, member of the Legislative Council, New South Wales Parliament. Mark, what are you doing to advocate for the dingo? Well, with the Animal Justice Party's platform is essentially about animal protection. It is it's, it only is logical in many ways that we work very hard to remove the status that some animals have been placed in by legislation and by various you know various trends in the community or cultures in in, in Australia. So, for example, the dingo is is really a wild animal of Australia and. Only, uh, uh, only recently it's been discovered that it doesn't have any actual connection to dogs in terms of its genetic makeup. Um, it's actually a very different species. It's a wild animal of Australia, but it's been categorised as a pest or a noxious, unwanted animal and therefore does not, uh, is not afforded the same protections um, as other wild Australian animals. So one of the main purposes um, of this campaign is to have that particular status, if you want to call it that, or branding, if you want, in legislation, to be removed from the um, Australian protection legislation of wild animals, have it removed and have it be protected as a wild animal and not as a species which is to be considered a pest. In advocating for just pure dingoes, does this kind of contradict an animal justice for hybridised dingoes that are, are doing the same job as the apex predator in, in the environment? So if the question is, am I advocating as the Animal Justice Party that only pure uh, genetically traced wild dingoes should be protected or should hybrids yes. or um, where dingoes have sometimes, I think, that's not that common, but where they've actually mated with some um, wild dogs and you have these hybrids or you have um, um, half dingo, if you want to say that. Our view would be is that either are protected, should be protected and given the wild status. Because we're the Animal Justice Party and not particular Animal Justice Party, we see that, um, you know, and I think this goes to the very point of what this whole question is that the Parliament's going to have to look at, is that here we have an animal, the dingo, which was uh, discovered, um, which has been here for, for millions of years, um, but of course became a problem animal, um, same way as that um, the agribusiness, the agriculture industry consider other wild animals such as kangaroos, they consider them to be uh, problem animals if they come into conflict with, 
with uh, agriculture, particularly competition in seeking feed alongside livestock. Our view is, is that, uh, you know, no animal should be demonised and therefore be treated in a way where it would be unlawful for you to treat another animal that way. For example, your companion dog or cat. If you were to give it 1080 poison or if you were to just go out and shoot it, like is done with dingoes and wild dogs and hybrid dingoes, you know, that would be an offence. We're of the view that all these animals should be protected. If there is an issue with a certain number of animals growing and becoming out of control and attacking stock or causing problems, we ne it needs to be clearly understood as to how this is happening. Um, and, you know, a lot of hunters who go out hunting with their dogs often release their dogs if the dogs have been injured. Um, and they're actually contributing, even though they're saying they're assisting the environment by um, re uh, shooting pe wild pigs, etc. Um, often they're releasing dogs into the environment. So these wild dog packs are actually often contributed to the, come into the environment because of mismanagement of um, dogs. But coming back to the, the crux of your question, the Animal Justice Party will always stand by animals no matter what they're called or what category they're put in and advocate for the best well-being and treatment of those animals. And we're not going to... We, we oppose categorising animals as being noxious, unwanted, vermin, pests, just because they're in competition with an agribusiness interest. I think it's about 55% of Australia's land is pastoral and we have national parks and they both persecute the dingo. Well, it's a bit yeah. like the mm. situation in Yellowstone National Park where the wolf was almost virtually exterminated because it was considered a pest. It was, it was escape coming out of the Yellowstone National Park during drought, for example, or come out of Yellowstone National Park and start to attack livestock on the periphery farmland and then was considered to be noxious, a pest, unwanted. So there was like a Rambo operation that happened at Yellowstone National Park where they basically killed almost every wolf. Then they had a serious problem with the number of elks and deer. Uh, the numbers started to just skyrocket because there was no natural predator keeping the numbers down. And so in Australia, we've got this situation where they've demonised this dingo, and yet when it's properly understood, the dingo prefers to eat animals like cats, like rabbits, other introduced species, interestingly enough, or small, uh, small wallabies or joeys and that sort of thing, or kangaroos that are, in a bat, in, that are sick. They prefer to take them out, just like the wolf does, in the Yellowstone National Park. So what's happened there is when they realise there's such a problem, they reintroduce the wolf, recategorising it as the natural apex predator in Yellowstone National Park. This is what we believe. Uh, we, we will look at any strategy to try and save an animal and bring the best animal well-being, animal welfare for that animal. And if that means convincing the Minister for the Environment, Gabrielle Upton, that this animal needs to be recategorised, or at least there be trials in rural areas where the dingo, if it has plenty of supply of, of the food it chooses, which is foxes and cats and maybe some small wildlife, that it won't attack. Its preference is not to attack sheep or calves. It would prefer to take those animals. And it, if there's a relationship with this apex predator established where, we can, where it's seen that it's actually um, moving into the position of the natural predators who keep the numbers of the other animals which they consider to be unwanted, uh, foxes and cats and rodents down, then that, that ends up being a working relationship um, 
for the uh, rural community, the agribusiness, and to keep the uh, wild animal, the dingo, alive. That completes the program for today. I'd like to thank very much Arian Wallach, Fiona Proben-Rapsey, Joshua Said, Mark Pearson, and thank you so much to Annie McLaughlin from 3CR's showreel program, All Things Film, Thursdays, 11am. Our Radiothon show is next week. We're all volunteers here at 3CR. So we've got to raise money to stay on air. And on Freedom of Species next Sunday, we have Claire Mann joining us as our guest for the show, which is great. And also we'll have some giveaways to entice people to ring up during the program to donate. Um, But you can do so beforehand. And just specify Freedom of Species when you do, please. The number is 94198377. See you next week. Fight for your mic. Donate now to 3CR's annual Radiothon. Call 94198377 or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate to pledge your donation and help 3CR give a voice to those not represented in the mainstream media. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.